good to be with you all. It's good to join you in worship uh, in person for those online. It's good to see you. I've got you pulled up here if you're wondering why I'm staring at my iPad. Uh, that's what I'm often doing is just checking in with the people who are online. So it's good to see you, Christy and the Campos and Heather and all the others who are online. We encourage you to take a second and check in. Uh, let us know that you're uh, watching and uh, we'd love to say hi to you. Uh, for everyone in line, uh, in, inside, it's good to have you here as well. Excited for today. Um, a couple of announcements before we do that, though. Let's uh, dismiss our kids for City Kids. So Garrett's in the back here, and if you're uh, heading out for City Kids, you can do that now. And uh, go have some fun. And uh, before our, uh, so we're in part three of, a, of an interesting series. A lot of times our series are week after week, but this one there's breaks in between because we're actually doing discussion groups and homework, just like uh, a, a seminary level class. Uh, and um, uh, so we're in part three and we've, uh, every three weeks Robert's been with us. So if uh, I, I'm looking around, most of you have been a part of this journey for us. If you're new, uh, welcome, excited to have you here as we wrestle with uh, racism in the church. A uh, couple announcements before I pass the mic over to uh, uh, Robert, metaphorically. F first off, if you're interested in giving, you can do that online, centralcity.co slash give. I just want to remind you of that. We also have a Dropbox. There should be, uh, in, a, in your pew or in a, one next to you, a little Connect card if you're interested in um, uh, connecting with us. You can do it online. Go to centralcity.co slash connect. Um, but there's also cards uh, probably close by and pins in the pew. You can fill that out. This is if you're new. We'd love to connect with you. Or if you uh, have a prayer request or if you want to follow up with something that you heard in the sermon, you want to sign up for something, you can use that to let us know and put that in the Dropbox in the back. And it's a black box with our logo on it. It's hard to miss. And um, uh, along those lines, we are planning our series for the rest of this year into next year, and we'd love your input. So I mentioned this last week. We have a sermon series survey. Um, it's, it's relatively easy to fill out because uh, a lot of it's just check boxes, but there's places where you can add ideas that we didn't think of. Um, so if you take uh, just you know a couple minutes and do that, we'd love your input uh, as we speak into kind of the, some of the topics that we can do. So you can find that at centralcity.co slash news, uh, or just go to our website, centralcity.co, and uh, scroll down. You can see all of our news articles. The other thing I will let you know, I mentioned this last week as well, is we have uh, our Next Steps event. Um, and this is really geared towards anyone who's new or who's started coming to this church in the last year or so. But because of COVID, it also applies to anyone who was interested in re-engaging. Maybe you've been part of the community in some way or another uh, for a variety of years, but you're interested in re-engaging. We're going to talk through, I'll share a little bit of my heart and uh, share the story of how we got started. Uh, we'll actually celebrate five years this September. So we're, we're moving out of like the church plant phase into just being a church. It's kind of weird. Um, so I'll share a little bit of that story. We'll have a place where you can ask questions, and then we'll also share ways that you can get involved. Um, we'll talk about baptism, sharing your story. We'll talk about small groups and places where you can serve, and etc. It's really just a great place to meet people as well and learn more about the church. So it's going to be on March 13th. I do invite you to register. You can do that by going to the Church Center app or go to our website, centralcity.co slash news, and you'll find a news article about it as well. You can register. There'll be child care provided. And I think the COVID rates are moving in such a direction that we're hoping to have lunch as well. So it's not a guarantee yet. I'm still confirming that, but uh, I think we'll probably um, uh, uh, hopefully be able to do some food. So it'll be after church on the 13th, and I encourage you to, uh, to sign up for that. It's going to be a, a good time together. There was something else I wanted to tell you all, and I don't remember what it was. 
but uh, maybe I will by the end of our time together. So with that, I'm going to invite Robert to come up and continue uh, part three with racism in the church. Well, good morning. Uh, good to see uh, you all who are here in the uh, sanctuary. And uh, for those of you online, I can't see you, but you can see me. So hopefully um, we'll make a connection that way. So um, yes, this is the third week uh, of the uh, series, Joe referenced racism in the church. And um, I offered this as a disclaimer uh, at the beginning, but this is a lot of content. I've done this uh, at a minimum. It's been a six-week class, and um, it could be as many as eight weeks. Uh, and so I'm trying to introduce a little content on these Sunday mornings and uh, give you at least the, the big chunks of information that convey the main points or themes that I'm trying to address. And then for those of you who are participating in the interim weeks and the discussions and the homework, you know, kind of tease those things out a little bit. I want to announce that uh, this Wednesday evening, the 23rd at 6.30, I will just have a host a uh, Q&A, kind of open discussion. Um, and we can talk about the content in a little bit more detail, answer some questions, things I may not have addressed or things that you'd like to see unpacked a little bit more. We'll try to do that on, um, on Wednesday evening for about an hour and a half. So please feel free to join that. Go ahead and um, get the slide going. Yeah, Zoom link's in an email. I think it's gone out maybe on the Facebook page and all that too. I want to do a little bit of a review and I want to emphasize one of the things that I tried to address um, the uh, last time we were together. <clears throat> I, I conflated this idea of whiteness and racism, which for somebody who hasn't heard that before or may have some issues with terms like that, um, no need to get defensive. It's, uh, it's something that I've unpacked. It's something that um, I've tried to clarify that it's not about identity per se, particularly um, even though folks might be identified as white um, and people might think, well, he's a racist, she's a racist and all that. It's really more about how those things have shaped all of us in American society. And the thing that I want to emphasize about that the most is that this is about, it's not about identity in the sense of like who you are in that sense, but it's about how the way those things have shaped us and the way it's influenced our behavior choices because it's the behavior we exhibit that has the impact on people. It's the things we do and say that do harm, particularly in a context like this regarding issues of racism. And uh, the people who get impacted, the marginalized folks, people of color, um, it's because of the things we say and do, not because our intent or all of that. So go ahead, next slide. So first I wanna get started with a, um, a video clip. Uh, so. You can go ahead and uh, see if that'll play for us now. It's about four minutes or so. Uh-oh. technical difficulty. Give me a chance to get my tea. 
So Seth and, and Chris, um, as Christians, can you talk about uh, now how, uh, from a theological perspective, uh, how, how racism should be dealt with? Within America, <laughs> race, I argue, is deeply embedded within the structures of American Christianity, the way we practice it. Um, race uh, was used to justify the beginnings of colonialism and the beginnings of slavery, right? Um, you have um, uh, colonists, Christopher Columbus among them, um, make the claims that indigenous people um, Africans, uh, the way in which they lived and, and performed their humanity wasn't Christian. It wasn't this white European notion of humanity. Therefore, these people are less than, right? They are less than human. They aren't, they're not human and they're something closer to an animal, mm -hmm. right? This is why we see the, the, the language of the animal still being used with regards to people of color. This is why we have a president that says these are the animals of this particular kind of gang, right? They uses that language and, and, and people know what's, what they're talking about because it harkens back to chattel slavery where you have the animalization of black folk, of using them as chattel labor, right? Um, and so we can't escape the fact that Christianity was a part of the reason why they, uh, the original colonists made this argument, right? That they're saying, well, they don't practice Christianity, and in this sense, they don't bear the Imago Dei, even though that's inconsistent with the gospel. Um, and I think fundamentally, from a theological perspective, this is at the core of racism, is that we see others, some folks in dominant culture, see others as not human as not really bearing the image of God in them, right? Because the image of God has been conflated, right? The way it's been structured from colonialism is that the image of God, it models white, male, heterosexual norms. This is the image of God that was created, right? This elevation of white maleness that, that at the same time um, uh, lowers um, anything else. And so in our aspiration as people to be seen as human, as people to be seen as human, all too often we find ourselves performing whiteness, performing the kind of behaviors we think will allow the dominant culture to see us as human because we've conflated human with whiteness. And so from the theologically what we need to do is really begin to unpack and, and, and reconstruct a new theological anthropology, right? What we believe uh, the God-human relationship is. What does it fundamentally mean to be human from a Christian perspective, right? How, do, how has God fashioned us to be in existence? And so what I do is I, I argue uh, for kind of a, a three kind of pronged approach uh, where I talk about the image of God, um, I talk about the um, mission of God and imitating Christ, right? And so in this sense, we all have to reflect uh, the fact that the mission of God is to be, to, to care for creation, mm -hmm. and that includes caring for other people. <coughs> um, uh, how we go about uh, doing that is, is, is beginning to recognize that we all bear the image of God, right? And that image of God is rooted in love, so our relationships and care should be rooted in love. And uh, from a, a praxis-oriented perspective, we should imitate Christ in the ways in which we love each other, right? This solidaristic life praxis of Jesus. 
um, is what one, one theologian um, calls it, Sean Copeland. And I think by modeling that kind of new way of seeing each other as human, we can begin to address the historical legacies of, again, a theologically justified racism. Um, but until churches begin to wrestle with how we've defined what it means to be human and what that God-human encounter requires of us, we're going to be replicating and, and repeating the, the same kind of theological justification that allows us, that allowed uh, Christians to exploit humans and, 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 and quite honestly exploit creation for the last five or six hundred years. Okay, next slide. So um, that's a lot of words and a few terms that you may not have heard before, but essentially what he's saying is um, this is a, a, a byproduct of uh, colonialism. And uh, for those of you who haven't been in touch with some of the previous content that we've discussed, um, you know, when Europe colonized the world, there was no such thing as race as in the constructs that we have now come accustomed to, but there was a thing as they was essentially European supremacy. And um, so that's what they took with them around the world and, and uh, subsequently uh, assumed sovereignty um, a, a sense of divine sovereignty over the land, its resources, and the indigenous folks that they encounter. Well, when it, so you fast forward in all this, and um, we get to the church. Now, the church has existed, obviously, um, you know, going all the way back to 1300s um, in some form or fashion. Um, but on this continent, um, the church existed. I mean, there were, you know, denominational churches, uh, the um, United Methodist Church, for example, uh, was a church that had been around for quite a while. And it just so happens that the beginnings or the origins of the black church, as we now call it, uh, stem from the um, racism and racial sin of the United Methodist Church back in 1787. So some of you may have heard of uh, Richard Allen and Absalom Jones, a couple of African-American pastors. Richard Allen had developed a, a reputation as a good pastor or a good preacher and came to this United Methodist Church um, uh, there in uh, Philadelphia. This is right around the time the Constitution was coming into fruition and all of that. And uh, when he began to preach, he attracted a lot of African-American folks to come to the church service. And so they came and we were starting to fill up. Well, that church was in the midst of racism. I mean, just racist ideas, bigotry against uh, black folks. Not sure why they chose Richard Allen to come and preach and be a part of that. But, you know, when you think about it, perhaps it's a part of God's sovereign plan over time. But um, they built a balcony area in the church and all of the black folks who came needed to go sit up in that balcony when they came to church to hear him preach or to worship. Well, one Sunday, um, Richard Allen gets there early and decides he wants to pray. So he kneels down at the altar in the main sanctuary to pray. And one of the elders came to him and said, you can't do that. You can't be down here. You can't pray down here. You got to get out of get up and get up, go up and about. And he says, well, I'm just going to pray. Let me pray. I'll finish my prayer and then I'll head out. No, no, no. You got to get up. And he snatched him up, pulled him out um, of the sanctuary from kneeling and praying. And then he and all of the black folks left. 
They all got up and left the church in protest. My guess is that there was a little strategy associated with all of that, perhaps, um, a la Rosa Parks sitting on the bus and, you know, whatever. But that's not cooperated uh, historically, but that'd be my guess. But um, anyway, so they all left. And then they began to worship. Uh, they had started a kind of an AIDS center in that community. And so they went to the building that they'd acquired and began to worship. A few years later, they found the first um, black church, first black denomination, African-American Episcopal Church, AME, African Methodist Episcopal Church. And uh, that was the birth of the black church in America from that point. And every denomination began similar splits as time moved forward. Next slide. So the racist origin of the church, it goes back to that moment in 1787. And what we have to appreciate is that the church began to grow with this racial division all the way through to, you know, during slavery to emancipation in 1865. And so those ideas are being embedded in every aspect of society, these, those racist ideas. And the church was uh, culpable. Now, there were abolitionists. There always have been, and the church and a lot of people of faith were the abolitionists of the day. And so there was always a pushback against this, but you know the mainstream won the day. But then here's what's significant. From emancipation forward, throughout the entirety of Jim Crow, the era of Jim Crow, the roughly 100 years of Jim Crow, that was the establishment of what we would now consider the modern American church. And so um, you have all these denominations, all of them split around the issue of slavery, and then segregation was the law of the land in every place in America. It didn't just exist in the South. It existed in the North as well. Some of the more egregious uh, perpetrations may have occurred in the South, but they were still killing folks and doing stuff in the North as well. They were still segregating with malice and intent. My father is 83 years old this year. He was born 1939 here in Columbus, Ohio, University Hospital, and remembers colored only, white only, water fountains, restrooms, in Columbus, Ohio during his childhood in the 40s. So it exists everywhere. So it's important to kind of appreciate that. So you've got the entire church being shaped theologically, being shaped in terms of its modes and means, but shaped in terms of its theology, shaped in terms of its music. All of that is happening in that sort of cauldron over time that has you know, been influenced by those racist ideas, that bigotry and racism against um, black folks, people of color in general. Next slide. <clears throat> then in the 60s and 70s, we get this thing called the church growth movement. And whether you're familiar with church growth movement in any significant way, none of us in this room have lived a day in the American church where the church growth movement hasn't influenced or shaped the way we experience church to this day. That movement became profound. It came right in the wake of civil rights. um, After the civil rights era in the 60s, mid 60s. And 
it began to emphasize this idea that the way to grow or plant a church was through this strategy of homogeneity. And that came from a missiologist named Donald McGavern, who discovered what he called the principle of homogeneity when doing missionary work. And they were spending millions of dollars sending Americans over to these countries around the world. And they had to learn how to speak the language and learn the customs and somehow figure out how to export their sort of comfortable American lifestyle into a place where they could go, you know, kind of preach the gospel. But Don McGavin realized that it would be better to equip the indigenous folks and allow them to... Um, preach the gospel to their folks. And that makes sense on so many levels. But what happened was a few of his students um, became a part of the Fuller Theological Seminary's Institute for Church Growth. And this is the baby boomer generation coming of age. And you, if you remember any of the taglines and the baby boomers were bigger, stronger, higher, faster. Um, he who has the most toys at the end wins. Those were all kind of aphorisms that came out of the 80s, in particular as baby boomers came of age. Well, they, they implemented this thing called the strategy of homogeneity. And there were books written, a guy named um, Peter Wagner uh, wrote a book called, you know, Your Church Can Grow. And that whole idea of identifying or targeting a demographic group um, to plant your church with, you know, create an aesthetic, create styles, create, you know, all of the things that appeal to a particular demographic. Some of you may have heard of Rick Warren and Saddleback Sam out at Saddleback Church. I was a part of um, the Vineyard Church here in Columbus in the 80s, and we had this thing, Vineyard Vinny, was something that we came up to sort of fit into that mode. But that whole thing, what it did, and it wasn't intended to be malicious or anything. It just seemed like it made sense as a strategy to do that. But in a country that was already divided by race like that, that had already begun to segment itself, coming out of uh, uh, an era of segregation, what that did was reinforce or at least made people comfortable with their bigotry. Comfortable with the idea, well, I don't have to go to church with other people. They can have their church. They can have their church. They can do their music. They can do their thing. We can have ours. And it just reinforced that. And then this next generation of folks, after the boomers, the Gen Xers came along, and they really put the metal, pedal to the metal, and began to develop all kinds of strategies, um, networks of church planting, Baby boomers began to resource some of that. And so you had a plethora of young leaders coming up in the 90s um, planting churches, using this strategy of homogeneity and building churches that became just one culture, you know, one group, one racial group, one demographic. You know, so you had biker churches, you had luau churches, you had... Boom, you know, middle-aged churches, you had techno churches, you had all kinds of different things because people felt like that was the way to just market, target, strategize. And it just reinforced all of this. So now you fast forward to the day, we've had a few more generations of folks or iterations of uh, Christian young people who've kind of come up. And Joe being one of those, and he and I have talked about this a lot, and I think he's even talked about it, but he was trained in that, in those strategies. 
not just him, but a lot of folks. I mean, I've worked with eight or 10 young pastors in this city alone who went to boot camps where that strategy, those tactics were um, taught to them. And they all got four, five, six years into their plants and threw their hands up, and particularly in a moment like now, and we're just this all-white church, or we're just, you know, we want to have more diversity, but why can't we, or why don't we? We invite people, why don't they come? What's going on? And so what I am, what I, what I came up with this training, and one of the things that I began to do was like, well, let's see if we can deconstruct that. So what I've done for the first um, couple of weeks and in this training and a little bit of this time is I've kind of painted this picture so that you can kind of connect the dots. What I'm going to start to do today and then the next time I talk and through the homework discussions is say, okay, what can we actually do about it? So I'm going to continue to deconstruct a little bit today and then um, kind of put the homework discussion out. And if we have time, maybe we can do a little bit of that discussion uh, with those of you who are in the sanctuary with some Q&A. So next slide. <clears throat> so here again is that timeline. I love these. I have another metaphor uh, uh, iceberg that you'll see a little bit later. But go ahead and hit click and all that should populate. So um, you've got the church developing through Jim Crow uh, segregation. You've got the church growth movement. So you got 233 years of this intensely racially divided development of the church. And now we want to see what do we do going forward. One more click and then we can flip sides. All right, next slide. So this is a little video clip from uh, Tim Keller. Some of you may be familiar with Tim Keller. Go ahead and play that and then I'll tell you when to stop. Our next speaker is Reverend Tim Keller, who will be speaking oh, no. on racism and corporate I think evil. I had it set for, it's about nine minutes in. See if you can do that. Get me approximately nine. Can you, can you, make, a, can you make an adjustment like that on the, um, on the queue? Our next speaker is Reverend Tim Keller, who will be speaking. I already got my tea, so I can't go get that. I'll just. Our next, Reverend Tim Keller, who will be speaking on. Well, this is like right in that nine minute range, yeah. Somewhere approximately nine minutes in. The Bible says about you and your, your culture, but what the Bible says about you and the human race how sin happens, how, how uh, salvation happens, it's all, there's corporate responsibility. You got that? And if you don't understand that, I, I, to some degree, Western people and white people in particular don't realize to what degree they filter out all kinds of things the Bible says. They just don't see them or they resist them because of that individualism. It's not biblical. It's not gospel. Let me go next step. Let's talk then about systemic evil. Here's what I mean by systemic. If you're part of a community, there are systems that the, the whole community, there's things that get done by the system. And you, by participating in the community, are to some degree getting that done. Even if all you do, there's levels, there's levels of responsibility. For, I'll, I'll give you these levels. 
you might be in the community and know exactly what the system's doing and be happy for it and actually actively doing it. Or secondly, you might kind of know what's happening in the system um, and yet not, you know, don't, you don't think too much about it, but you're kind of in favor of it. Or number three, you, you know what's happening, but you don't do anything to stop it. Or number four, you don't really know what's happening and you don't care. And you don't even care to try to, uh, uh, you know, find out about it. In every, so for example, Holocaust. Okay, let's go to the Holocaust. At the top of the system, I mean, the Holocaust killed Jews, plus others, but because of the Jews right now. And it was a system. At the top of the system, at the most, you might say, uh, uh, responsible, you had people that set up the death camps. Underneath that, you have guards and people who are in the death camps who are just following orders, as they said. Underneath that, you had people in the town, civic leaders, who kind of knew what was happening there, but they didn't want to know. Though very often, after the war, some of them committed suicide when they actually saw what was happening in the camp because they kind of knew, but they had no idea exactly and so forth. And then you go down to the citizen, the German citizen, who had heard rumors but didn't want to know and didn't do anything about it and just paid their taxes and worked. Don't you see that at the one end, you've got people who are more responsibly, you know, more corporately responsible, at the bottom a little less corporately responsible, but only all those people died because the whole system was working and everybody who was in the system Everybody who wasn't resisting the system was part of it because the system couldn't have killed all those people unless, the, unless everybody was doing their job, even just looking the other way. Got that. Let me go down a step. When I moved to a little town in Virginia uh, in the 1970s, one of the things I discovered, but I didn't really think much about, was uh, there were six city councilmen, women, city, city council members, and they were elected at large. 25 to 30% of the population of the town was black. But because they weren't elected by region or neighborhood, they were elected at large by the whole community, they were all six white. The, um, the rationale was, oh, we don't want that awful word politics where everybody's fighting. And because the whole community is electing everybody, every single council member is representing the whole group. But the fact of the matter was, of course, that the poor part of the city, the poor part of the town, the school over there, the black part of town, was just being absolutely starved of resources. Now, at the top of this system were councilmen and people like that who really knew exactly what they were doing. But very important to the system was uh, a young northern white pastor in his 20s and 30s who kind of knew about it and never really asked and just continued to support it just by not not putting up any kind of fuss and just participating in the elections, etc. It wasn't until years later that I looked back on the thing. By the way, that went away in 1983. But uh, looking back, the year after I left, looking back on the thing, I, I realized, wait a minute, what was I doing? I was part of a system. Did I experience some corporate responsibility? Absolutely. In the narrow, I was, I was responsible for something that was keeping the people down, the poor black people in that town down partly because I didn't care enough to really think about it. In the broad, by being a white man in the South in the 1970s, and I actually had an elder in my church whose father had fought in the Civil War. You can figure that out, it actually happened. He was in his 70s, his, his father had fathered when he was 65, he had lied about his age and gotten into the Civil War at the age of 14, but by gosh, I had a, 
I had a civil war, I mean, a guy whose father was a civil war veteran in 1975 on my session. So the civil war wasn't that far uh, back. And for any white person in that town, when so, it was so obvious that so many of the, the poor black people in that town were in that situation over the generations because of slavery. For me to say, I don't have anything to do with that, I don't have any responsibility to do something about their plight is just unbiblical. Okay, you can stop um, it. There are also, let me just give Next slide. Okay, here's that iceberg metaphor that I was referring to. We all know about icebergs and what's um, the, dis the distinctive about icebergs is most of it's underneath the surface. And I use that as an illustration very pointedly because it was a disaster for the Titanic. Go ahead and hit, a, hit something and it should start populating. There we go. <clears throat> so one of the things to think about is that the way we design all of our systems, all of our programs and things in society, it's, it's, it starts off based upon some values that we have at the base of the pyramid. Our socioeconomic system you know, then shapes that. So you all are, you know, the way we do any organization um, is kind of connected to our socioeconomic system and driven by the values of our socioeconomic system. We then design our policies and procedures and different things based upon that a socioeconomic system, then we develop our programs and services, then we staff those programs and services and deliver them to the community. And when you think about um, ministry programs that are tended to serve the poor in some respects, look at where that, you got the racial and ethnic minorities, particularly those living in poverty, we got these ministry services that we've developed that are supposed to be helping, but at closer examination with more interrogation, you realize that they end up perpetuating the problem much more than helping it. And that's a whole nother class for a whole nother time that I teach about, but just keep that image in mind. Next slide. <laughs> so here's the way that works. Um, we developed all of our programs and services. Those things were shaped. It, Maybe just, yeah, just kind of keep doing it for me, yeah. Racism, the organizations and our the organizational development was shaped by racism. The values that we have that kind of influenced all those things shaped by racism. And then our dominant, our socioeconomic system was established based on slavery by racism. And then we developed those programs and services and things and we don't see all that stuff that's going on underneath the surface and don't realize how much that's shaped and influenced the way we do things. And so, uh, next slide. We can go ahead and skip this slide for the sake of time. Let's go to the next one. Um, if, if it will, maybe it won't. That's all right, now next slide, there we go. So in our culture, you, uh, you've heard the term dominant culture before. So we have a, our American culture, there are, uh, we have a dominant set of values. And as I've tried to connect <clears throat> the dots, you know, those values have been shaped by racism. They started with the biases and assumptions of the white men who established this country and its socioeconomic system. 
those biases and assumptions were more about leveraging their, value, their um, power and control over the land and its resources. If you recall, particularly those of you who did the homework, you know, women didn't have the right to vote to 144 years after the, you know, the country was established. And men had to give them that vote, um, you know, because men had to troll. That's the way hegemony works in, in any kind of social context. <clears throat> and all of those things became what has um, conflated into the term or the idea of whiteness. And I know I asked this question early on, do you identify as white or are you identified as white? And that's a, not a trick question, but if you think about that, you really start to think about that, that's when you, begin to, you can begin to deconstruct some of the things that I'm talking about and to begin to recognize where you personally can begin to make changes and which is where all this is going. So what are the values that are at issue? So I'm gonna give you four that are pretty common to all of us, but these are the ones that I believe to be operative values that can be addressed to begin to change some of the dynamics in this congregation and in other uh, organizations in general, but in this congregation, we sort of figure out what that means. And some of these will be intuitive, but it's, again, it requires some interrogation, investigation. So when it comes to leadership, one of the values that drives that is we tend to centralize leadership. There's always a CEO, there's a hierarchical pyramid, the person at the top of the pyramid makes the decisions or the buck stops with them. You've heard that term before. And then what that results is, is in control. And that doesn't matter who's in, the, in that position. The dynamic of the organization tends to flow to the top where the decisions get made. Where it comes to education, or in this instance, discipleship, it's, we think it's more about information. So the, it becomes teaching-centered is what happens. So you is among the reasons why you could have a Sunday morning service that has 30,000 people listening to someone preach or lecture. Um, and if you know the church I'm talking about, maybe. I don't know if you do, but there's one. Um, it's this one. Can't you tell? No. Um, and... Um, but, but yeah, but that's a dynamic. So they think if you can just give people information, that's how you learn, just by disseminating information and people can master information. Um, you know, that's one of the way. When you think of the view of time, it becomes linear. So you become focused on outcomes. So measurements of success, metrics that say this is what success means, because you have a linear view of time. Joe will tell you that in his church planting, you know, whatever, he was given X number of time to get some stuff going so that his congregation could be sustainable and could pay the bills and do all this other kind of stuff. Benchmark. Benchmarks of success, those are metrics, those are outcomes that have little to do with real life transformation and change and growth. And then in our society, and this is what Tim Keller was alluding to when the video started, was that we are, we are individualist. We have a society steeped on individualism. And we don't see ourselves as connected to the broader community. And as such, when we think of ourselves as individuals, we think about our own personal success. 
What, heck, what can we achieve? We might extend that to our families. Can, what can we do? We're going to invest in our family's success. And in our in organizations, my team's success, in some arbitrary sense, wins games. Or in this instance, my church's success. How many people can we get to join our church? How many activities can we do? So that whole area, um, these four areas, with the, the, the values being centralization, information, linear view of time, and individualism sort of driving things at the base, resulting in those outcomes, that's really what the problem is. Those are values that we have a chance through interrogation we can flip. So, next slide. And this is the homework for uh, folks. And those of you uh, will get prompted with this, but here's the homework. I'm going to ask you to take a look at the areas of this congregation, and this is what you'll do in your group discussions over the next couple of weeks. Where have those dominant values influenced the way staffing and leadership takes place in this congregation? What about in developing your discipleship and, tr and um, training areas of the church? What, what about there? How have those dominant values influenced worship? and other types of gatherings that you have. And then lastly, um, whatever outreach or evangelism that you do as a congregation, how have those four dominant values influenced those four areas of this congregation? And that's the thing that you can noodle on. We've got five minutes, is that right? Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to, I just want to see if you get that what I'm asking you to do. So to give me an indication that some of you, one of you gets that, somebody tell me, um, just give me an idea of how you think, for example, the way outreach and evangelism is done. How do you think one of those dominant values may have influenced, or if something else resonated with you, something else came to mind. Somebody just give me something to um, help me know that it's just clicking. You're going to have plenty of time to think about it, but anybody. I mean, this actually came up in our discussion group, um, but one of the things we were talking about, not necessarily this church, but Capital C Church as a whole, mm -hmm. and ministry and missions. And, you know, I grew up being told missions is very good, like so noble of you to do, like go and it was always take something that I was superior in. Mm. Whether it was technology or English, the language, or, you know, my superior house building skills, <clears throat> which they're not, and then go to a third world country and do that for them. Those poor people who were in such desperate need of my eight-year-old carpentry skills. And it, it has been very much like a us serving them. And the thing that I like about this church is in the ministry that I've seen, specifically Little Bottoms, we tried to flip that or at least rewrite it in, in some ways. So it's not an us and them. It is an us. Us, us. Right. Us. So one of the things I heard you talk about, you didn't use this term, but the idea of paternalism. You know, you hear the uh, great white savior um, that's another term that's been bandied around that people may be familiar with. Yeah. Jumping off that, it, it, some of what she said actually falls into that category, I think, of personal success. Mm -hmm. Because 
Exactly. Yeah. with one illustration from my own experience doing community work in what's now the, the, the Wyland Park neighborhood, the short north where all that campus partners development, if you're familiar with any of that. When I first got involved there, um, probably would have been in the late 90s, early 2000s. This is before a lot of that, had, that work had begun or at the beginnings of some of that. And we started doing stuff with the university and um, one of the things that I did in, in the group of people who were working with me, um, we tried to be a mediator between the university's investment in the neighborhood and sort of help, you know, kind of manage some of that. Because you had, you know, House State's huge and they had all different colleges and had all different people trying and wanting to help do stuff in the neighborhood and all of that. Well, um, the pe people in the neighborhood were kind of tired of that, you know, because people, you know, one group would knock on their door and say, hey, can we help do this or can we do that or whatever? And, um, and then the people would say, well, sure, but then the semester would end and then those people would be gone and they never got done what they said they were going to do. So we're walking down the neighborhood because there was a group of people who wanted to help with housing stuff, like help people paint their house or fix their porch or do something. And so we're looking at this house and we go, well, this house, look, it's got half of it is um, you know this color and the other half is a different color. Well, we, we should maybe we can help fix that or we can do something about that. And so we knock on the door and the woman answers the door and says, um, yeah, what do you want? And they said, well, we're here to help. We want to help people. You know, we want to help people. Maybe we can help with the house or help you do some things or maybe we can help paint the house. He says, well, I hope you can because the last group of Ohio student uh, people, that's what they did. They just finished half the house and then they left. Right? They were gone. So part of the point is that you come in with your objective to do what you think helping might be and don't take into consideration what might be the most beneficial or helpful to the people that you're trying to engage. And that was a quote unquote secular activity. but going over to some place and building this or helping with that on some mission trip, that's all the same thing. It's all coming from the same spirit, the same idea. Yeah. Referencing, I think, the linear timeline perspective. Yeah. Heather says, in my previous church, there was always an urgency of entering a discipleship, mentorship relationship, ASAP. So there was a sense that timing was very important and that you had to herd people along an assembly line of ministry milestones. Right. And I would say that, I would add to that and say for my training, a lot oftentimes discipleship is presented as a pipeline of specific events in a specific order. And outside of my context, I had someone attend a church I was pastoring and say they left the previous church because in order to become a member, they had to identify a particular day date on the calendar that they had a conversion experience mm. like it, 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 this was the moment and then here are the things that happen afterwards as if it's like check boxes and they just like well i just kind of slowly grew into christ it was more organic there wasn't a specific day right and they couldn't become a member unless they put down a date yeah 
Well, what you'll see um, as, we, so as we go forward, because I'm, I'm going to offer the next time we're together, I'm going to offer some alternative values um, for those same four areas for you to consider as the way you can begin to make the changes and apply those values in perspective. One of the words or one of the terms is organic um, when, I, when, we t when we talk about that in terms of that view of time. So anyway, so I want to close on that in terms of our time because um, uh, we're, we're running out of time. But if you are a part of the group um, already, then that'll be your homework assignment. Um, and I'll prompt you via the email. For those of you who aren't a part of the group and you just want to think about that um, from your own perspective, um, take some time and do that and feel free to you know, hit Joe up with some thoughts or, or um, get a hold of me with some thoughts and you can add your voice to that discussion as well. Thank you all. Um, appreciate the time this, uh, this Sunday and um, we'll see you in a few weeks. Yeah, so Wednesday night at 6.30 to 8, you can jump on the Zoom. If you want the link, if you're not on our email list, you, we can make sure you get that. Uh, we'll post it on Facebook as well. But if you're on our email list, you should have gotten it. If you're not, love to add you. Um, and you can chat. And it's, it's just an open forum. So you can jump on for a couple minutes and ask a question or engage. And um, Robert's uh, 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 willing to, you know, we got to embrace a messiness. So if you've got something you're afraid to say, just say it. We're, this is a Robert. You're going to find. We'll let you know uh, how he feels about it. But it's welcome. Um, the other thing, which I was going to say earlier, and I said I couldn't remember, um, we are looking for someone to share their testimony next week. And uh, I'm curious if there's anyone here, online or in person, that'd be willing to do it. I'm going back to actually inviting people to raise their hands because that seemed to work really well last time. Anyone interested? Yeah, uh, we're going to do it in a particular order, and if you are willing at some point, let me know. You can fill out the Connect card, or you can email me. I'm going to leave you with this blessing. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. It's good to see you all in person. For those who joined the line, it's good to see you interact as well, and uh, we'll see you next week.